perspective is often a most valuable thing, perspective. Take a look at this video. Uh, you have to excuse some of the unconvincing accents, um, but, um, and I'm pretty sure it's not a true story, although it says at the beginning it claims to be. But take a look at this video. Perspective is often a most valuable thing. Captain, there's an unknown object at 1200. Sir, contact established. Answer bigger, please. This is A853. Please change your course by 15 degrees southwards in order to prevent a collision with us. This is the USS Lincoln, member of the United States Navy. Change your course by 15 degrees northwards in order to avert a collision with us. Over. This is not possible. You have to avoid. This is Captain Richard James Howard speaking, commander of the USS Lincoln aircraft carrier, part of the Navy of the United States of America. We are the second largest warship of the American fleet. We are escorted by two cruisers, six destroyers, and four submarines. I command you to change your course by 50 degrees northwards. If you do not comply, we will be forced to take necessary action. Over. We have our food and a friend who is making a siesta right now. We do not move anywhere. We are a lighthouse and the coast of Spain. You may well have heard that story before, but perspective, it's, uh, it's important, isn't it? And uh, we're going through a series as a church. We like to kind of work through uh, books of the Bible. At the moment, we're going through a series in the book in the New Testament, a letter called Philippians. And if you've been here in previous weeks, you would have seen uh, that, uh, that Paul, the guy who wrote this letter, is, uh, is stuck in prison or, or house arrest. He's, he's in custody. And uh, we might easily misunderstand what's going on at the beginning of the section we're looking at today as we, as we read through the letter and continue in the letter. Uh, we're looking at Philippians chapter 1. Uh, do turn to it if you'd like to follow. If you're using the church Bibles, it's on page 1178. 1178, Philippians chapter 1. And as we uh, begin, we're, we're kind of picking up from the last half of verse 18. And as we begin uh, reading that today, some of us might wonder if the, the great apostle Paul, the guy who wrote this letter, the great leader of the church, if he'd got it wrong. Has he got it wrong? I'll continue to rejoice, he says. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Did Paul get it right? Did Paul get this right? I'll continue to rejoice, for I know what's happened will turn out for my deliverance. 
I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed. And yet, we know that Paul didn't make it out of his prison. We know he was executed. But he got that one wrong, didn't he? Where was the deliverance? He got that one wrong. Or did he? You see, Paul had a a better perspective than that. Unlike the the U.S. Navy captain in the video, this rather limited perspective, Paul had a better perspective than that. In this context, deliverance doesn't mean his release from prison, his release from custody, but something more important, his ultimate salvation, his ultimate vindication before God, whether uh, in life or in death, before God, Paul is going to be delivered, he's going to be saved, going to be rescued. And this will come about through their prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul will be so faithful that he will be entirely vindicated, saved before God in the end. And ashamed here, I think, is in a reference to he's not going to be ashamed before God. He's going to be able to stand before God with no shame. This, this phrase, this will turn out for my salvation, uh, corresponds exactly uh, with a part in the Old Testament part of the Bible. I think Paul is quoting uh, from a book of Job. Uh, Job is a, a guy who wrote a, a book in the Old Testament who experienced immense suffering. And in chapter 13 of Job, uh, verse 16, Job says, or verse 15, Job says, even though he slays me, even though God kills him, even though he slays me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless person would dare to come before him. And Paul's using this in the same way. Even though I die, whether I'm released or not, even though I die, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. I know that before God, I've got this hope. And that's, that's Paul's perspective, just as we kind of launch into these verses. And that shapes how Paul lives his life. That perspective of knowing that before God, he's right. Before God, he's right. He's going to be saved. He's going to be okay. He's got this hope of this eternal life with God. That shapes how he lives his life. First of all, in verses 20 to 26, uh, we see that God, uh, Paul's kind of given this idea of living for the glory of Christ. Living for the glory of Christ. Paul had this perspective, this confident trust that he would be okay with God. But Paul's perspective was not just about the future. Paul's perspective, Paul's whole being, was orientated around one thing, glorifying Christ. This is clear from verse 20. So that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Christ will be exalted, glorified, magnified, made large, lifted up, held in high honor. And this was what shaped Paul's and orientated Paul's whole life to live for the glory of Christ, live that Christ would be lifted up, would be uh, praised, would be held in high honor. Now, uh, I've got a little uh, uh, rope over here, and uh, I want you to imagine uh, that this rope goes on forever and ever, okay, so it's quite a long rope. I've got to be careful I don't knock off all the um, stuff on there, because that would be quite bad, I suppose. Um, but, um, oh, I'll go around this way. It's a lot longer, but it's getting stuck. Imagine this rope goes on forever and ever, 
And this tiny red part here, you see this bit at the end here? This tiny red part is your, your life here on Earth. But this rope is your existence. By the way, I didn't make this up. I got this off someone else. This rope is your existence, okay? Your entire existence. And it goes through that door and it goes on forever and ever and ever. But this tiny red part is your life here on earth. And some of us, some of us, we kind of just are so obsessed with this little red part that we forget about all of this that goes on and on and on forever. We kind of think, oh, well, we've got to... We've got to do really well in school, which we have. We've got to work hard at school. But we've got to do really well in school and college, and we've got to get the right grades. We've got to get, get the right success, academic success, academic achievement, so that we can go to the right university. Southampton, obviously. <laughs> and, and, then, uh, and then we can get the, the right degree, and, uh, and, and then we can get the best job. And then we can progress in our career, and, and we can get the best paid job, and we can have the nicest home and the best car and whatever else it is we might go on for. And we, we're obsessed with this tiny red part. And we forget about all that is on to follow. Millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years forever afterwards. And some of us kind of just kind of focus on making this tiny bit at the end when we finish working. We make this the kind of most comfortable bit we can. We do everything we can to have this nice uh, tiny in, in retirement here at the end perhaps. And we get so distracted by this red part. Some of us are consumed with it. Maybe it's all we think about. But what we do in this red part determines how we're going to exist for the millions and millions and millions of years forever afterwards. Why would we spend it just consumed by perhaps this tiny bit at the end, retirement or whatever we are living for? What is it that you're living for? What is it you're living for? Popularity? Fame? Power? Academic success? Money? Career success? Your children? Retirement? Holidays? Gaming? Sports? And some of those things might be great things, but they only, they only affect this tiny little red part here. Paul is, is calling us in these verses and showing by his example to live for the glory of Christ, which is definitely uh, of benefit and of value in this tiny red part, but also for the whole of our existence. Living for the glory of Christ. And it's so easy to become distracted. This is the world we live in. Even uh, the week before last, um, I often work at home, and uh, I'd come back from here for a meeting or something and cycled home. I think it was from House of Prayer, praying uh, with uh, friends on, on Tuesday lunchtime. And came home, and it was a sunny afternoon, as I recall, which has been quite rare, haven't they? And I got home with this sunny afternoon, and I thought, oh, you know, I'd love to go out in the garden. And kind of, I'm, getting a bit, I'm getting a bit boring, really. I want to go out and do some gardening or something like that. I kind of was finding myself almost longing for retirement, which is a bit early. And I was finding myself just kind of consumed with this red bit. I wish I didn't have to get on with this work. I wish I didn't have to carry on with what I needed to do because I was consumed with this red bit, wanting, wanting to just have a, a nice time out in the garden doing some clearing up or whatever. It's easy to be distracted, but Paul was living for the glory of Christ. And he continues in verses 21 to 24, For to me to live is Christ, 
and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And so here are these, these two options for Paul. His life, his continued life, or his death. His life here on earth, that is, or his death. And in either of these options, uh, as someone who has one commentator has written, Paul is simply the instrument in which the greatness of Christ shines out. Paul is simply the instrument in which the greatness of Christ shines out. There's a a similar idea picked up in in 2 Corinthians, where in his weakness, Paul would talk about, um, in the weakness of his body, the power of Jesus being revealed. Whether in weakness or in good, sort of active, healthy life or or in death even, the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ, shines out through Paul. And that's, uh, that can be encouraging for us, I think, can't it? Because not all of us feel like we're at our prime. Not all of us uh, feel like everything is going really well in our life. Some of us are facing quite significant challenges. And we can be tempted to think, oh, well, this challenge is too much for me. That's, that's reduced me to... to you know, I can't, I can't engage in this. But actually Paul is saying, even in our weakness, even in death, we can be those who live, that are instruments of, of the glory of Christ, who live to shine for Christ. In, in, in Paul, Christ lives. And he's clearly going to show his glory, either by Paul's life or by Paul's death. And we ought to ask ourselves, Am I at my Lord's disposal in this way? Is my whole being given to making much of Christ? Is my whole being given to making much of Christ? Even in my limitations, in my restrictions, in my weakness, am I given to making much of Christ? Someone who's captured it by summarizing, Christ is the object, motive, inspiration, and goal of all that Paul does. And sooner or later, if we live with this mindset, uh, we'll draw the connection that living for the glory of Christ will include giving up myself for the benefit of Christ's people. Living for the glory of Christ will include giving up myself for the benefit of Christ's people. And if you know the letter to Philippians, you're probably already thinking about chapter 2, which uh, follows uh, later. Indeed, uh, one person summarizes this, this whole kind of section of the letter as putting uh, those who've believed in the gospel at the center of your self-denial, at the center of giving yourself up. So often we're tempted to evaluate alternatives by thinking through what seems best for us, what's best for me. But how often do we raise as the kind of first thought, what's best for God's people? What's best for the church? What would be best for my brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe... Uh, An example could be when uh, you're faced with a job offer, perhaps, that would cause you to go to a different city. How often do we think as our first thought, what would be best for God's people? What would be best for our brothers and sisters in Christ? How often does that shape how we're thinking? 
Uh, or uh, I can say, uh, personally, I was asked recently if I'd take on a responsibility, a responsibility that would cause probably quite a bit of headache over the next couple of months and extra stress to fit something in that I wasn't planning to fit in. And uh, it was fairly short notice, rel uh, relatively, comparatively, and uh, might be a bit risky. And it would be so much easier. And I wanted to kind of say, oh, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think uh, it would be quite difficult, actually, be a lot more pressure, a lot more demands on time. I'd rather, I'd rather an easier couple of months. And uh, that was when I was preparing this message <laughs> and thinking, ah, okay. <laughs> um, actually, uh, what's best for God's people? What's get best for God's people in this? And putting that, that principle into, into the, into the decision-making process. Maybe it's something we can do when we're faced with decisions in life to ask ourselves, what's best for God's people? This is all part of living for the glory of Christ, is putting God's people above ourselves. So how are we to live in this way? What does fruitful labor for Paul looks like, look like? If he goes on living, verses 25 to 26, I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Uh, the faith here is the, the kind of body of, of belief, the body of truth uh, that they're trusting in. And Paul desires that the Lord's people, that God's people, are growing in their understanding and appreciation of the truth, God's truth, that he had taught them. And they're increasing joy in that truth. This is seen also in verse 26. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This kind of idea of delighting in Christ, boasting in Christ. Christ is the, the first thing in their hearts. That's what he wants to be the case. Christ is the first thing in their hearts. They lift him up. They honor him. They boast in him. They delight in him. They glory in him. That's what Paul is laboring for in his people. But how does he labor for that? How does he labor for this? Uh, the context uh, of the letter, as we've seen from the previous weeks, would suggest that at least part, that's preaching Christ, bringing the person and message of Christ to people and applying it to every circumstance of their lives. This isn't uh, something just for, for special preachers or just for Paul. Uh, this is something which we can all be engaged in, in some way. What would it be like to be part of Portsford Church if we all had this mindset where we saw each other's progress and joy in the faith. Just imagine for a moment, what would it be like to be part of Portsmouth Church if we all had this mindset where we saw each other's progress and joy in the faith? Where we gave up working for ourselves and worked for each other's progress and joy in the faith? Think of one person in the church family one person, not yourself, someone else, one person. And what could you say or do in this next week to help that person grow in their faith in Jesus? I'm going to give you time to think about the answers to these questions. How could you help that person experience joy in knowing Jesus this week?
And will you do that this week? Even if you have to sacrifice some of your time or your money or whatever it is, will you do that this week? Maybe there'll be something as simple as sharing a word of encouragement with them about who Jesus is or or what Jesus does and how that relates to their life. Maybe uh, you'll buy them a book which you found helpful in your progress in joy and faith. Maybe you'll meet up and share some verses from the Bible with them and pray with them. I am intentionally talking about people within the church family. Of course, we should think about our friends and family and the thousands and thousands of others who are outside of the church family. And of course, we should, come, uh, we should desire for them to come to know uh, joy in knowing the Lord Jesus themselves. And of course, we should give ourselves towards that goal as Jesus has sent us. And doubtless, this is part of the fruit that Paul labors for. But right now, I'm intentionally focusing on our life together as a church family. Let's be a community of people who put each other's progress and joy in the faith above our own convenience or comfort. This is part of living for the glory of Christ. But Paul's mindset is not just to live for the glory of Christ. He wants Christ to be glorified by his death also. Uh, So secondly, don't worry, the time will be slightly less. Uh, Secondly, dying for the glory of Christ. Uh, Verses 20 to 23. For me, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going on, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. If Christ is the, as someone said earlier, is the object and motive and inspiration and goal of all that Paul does, then it's no surprise, really, that the gain uh, in this verse has to do with the personal benefit for Paul of being in his Lord's presence, of being with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's he's talking about here in, in this desire to depart and be with Christ. And he's saying, what shall I choose between these two options? I don't know. I don't know. could be translated, I have nothing to declare. Uh, And it's not a reference to to customs at the airport. Um, But it's a a real question for Paul. Something he actually thought about and asked God about. He sought God. What shall I do? I'm really, really torn. I don't know what's going to happen here. He was talking to God, seeking him, asking him about it but he had nothing to declare. The Lord hadn't revealed an answer to him, and so he didn't know. But for Paul, he could say, I desire to depart and be with Christ. I long to depart and be with Christ. There's a strong desire is the word that's used, a a longing which he earnestly and and continuously desires. It's the same uh, word used by Jesus in, in Luke's gospel. I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Paul was longing to depart and be with Christ. The strong desire is to be with Christ, to enjoy his close company. Think of the, uh, the family of the British astronaut Tim Peake in his um, six-month expedition on the International Space Station. And imagine their desire to be united with him, to be reunited with with Tim and enjoy close, intimate family time together when he returns. 
his two sons are, are often are reported to have often said uh, that uh, they're counting the number of sleeps uh, until daddy returns. And so Paul had this strong desire to be united with Christ, to be in his close, intimate presence. And maybe uh, some of us here this morning are struggling to get our head around this. Can a person really, genuinely be this confident about dying? Can someone even be positive, hopeful about dying? Can someone even long to die? And this isn't, uh, we mustn't mistake this as Paul just wanting to be freed from his illness or freed from the bad situation that he's in. Uh, He's in a bit of a mess in custody. I want to get out of that. Uh, I just want to escape. That's not what's going on here. We've already seen that it's a tension for Paul. He also wants to live and and be of benefit for for the Lord's people and help them to grow in, in their faith and in their joy in the faith. Paul's not just wanting to escape. He's so confident about death because he wants to be with his Lord. Can anyone be that confident? As uh, Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of the United States of America, is quoted to have written in the 18th century, in this world nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. We all know that death is coming. The question is, are we prepared for it? How do we feel about it? Many fear death. Not Paul. Not Paul. Because he knew Jesus, the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. And for Paul, death would bring him closer to his Savior. Paul knew that he had been adopted by God, who'd become his father and brought him in to to share the sonship of Jesus, who had in fact become Paul's brother, Death was not an event to be feared for Paul because he knew it would bring him closer to his father. He knew he would enjoy being a child of God in the fullest fullest sense than he could ever imagine now. No wonder Paul had this strong desire, this eager longing to lead this life and be with Christ. Too better, too right. This is better by far. In the Greek language that Paul's writing in, he's using language that has the strongest emphasis. How much better this is. This is ultimately by far the best thing. Can you imagine sharing this perspective on death? If we'd like to have this perspective on death, then we need to know Paul's Lord. For Paul, he was torn between the benefits of continuing to live for the glory of Christ or dying and being with Christ. The two sides were in competition. There was equal pressure on these two options. And uh, I'm challenged by how much I desire either. Seems to be an intense struggle for Paul. He desires both. He's really wrestling with this. But if we're honest with ourselves, I guess if we're not that fussed about either of those options, then we won't understand Paul's dilemma. Can I honestly say that I've been really wrestling lately with a desire to go and be with Christ and a desire to be here for everyone else's joy and progress in the faith? 
I'm challenged by that. Maybe you're all super holy and uh, just like Paul and you don't, uh, you're not challenged by that. But there we go. Maybe uh, we should dare to pray that the Lord would increase our desire to be with him and or increase our desire to give ourselves to labor for our brothers and sisters' progress and joy in the faith. But we ought not to pray this lightly, though. Remember where Paul was. Remember the situation he was in. And maybe in God's goodness, he might allow us to suffer in some way that evokes those desires in us in answer to our prayer. So don't pray that lightly. But maybe some of us will want to pray that the Lord will increase our desire in these things. That brings us uh, on very briefly to our third section uh, this morning, which kind of really is opening up the next part of the letter. So from verses 27 to 30, and uh, we've had living for the glory of Christ, dying for the glory of Christ, and thirdly here we see suffering for the glory of Christ. Whatever happens, verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So this is opening up the next section of the letter, and Paul's calling us to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. This good news of what Christ has done in coming to give himself so that we can have life, coming to lay his life down for us and rescue us, make us his people, bring us into that adoption, that sharing of his sonship, being children of God our Father. All that Christ has done in this, this great gospel, Paul is saying we need to live lives consistent with that, live lives worthy of that. And we will go through, uh, we'll continue next week and see uh, how chapter 2 kind of follows on and is picking up this idea. But here, uh, Paul begins with the example of, of suffering and, and the fact that God's people are facing suffering. Here, uh, perhaps, uh, it's talking about opposition and, and, and suffering in the same way that Paul's suffering. Perhaps it's a bit more intense than we know in, in Portswood in Southampton in 2015. But uh, we face opposition. Let's not be fooled and we kind of think a bit about that and, and we sort of think about some things that come up and, and attack us. We face opposition. And the call here is to an appeal to unity and courage in the face of that opposition. As a uh, as I wasn't here last week, but as John kind of really helpfully said in the first week, um, this idea of our togetherness, it's a fellowship. We're a partnership in the gospel. This is a really important point in this. And so it is with our suffering, that we suffer together. I know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. There's a call here as part of our living lives consistent with what Christ has done for us, as he has suffered for us, to suffer together in our our living, those gospel-shaped lives. 
But the exhortation to, to live lives worthy of the gospel continues in chapter 2. It goes through uh, examples of, of, uh, of unity through humility, following the supreme example of Christ and, and shining uh, as stars in the universe. All those things we'll, we'll continue to look at uh, next week. I want to, to finish, it's a bit cheeky, a bit naughty, but I want to finish by, by sort of sneaking into chapter 2 uh, and just reading it. Um, uh, not all of it, but uh, just reading a bit, uh, just really to see how this follows on uh, from the things we've been thinking about. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. Remember this idea of living for the glory of Christ and how that will affect uh, our living for others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a uh, most excellent passage, and I can't wait till next week to kind of continue looking at that together. Maybe uh, you want to, to read that in preparation for next Sunday, if you're going to be here, to read that great hymn and remind ourselves of the one for whom it's all for. Not this kind of little red bit here, this is for him as well, but the one for whom our whole existence is for. Remind ourselves of the one for whose glory we're living, for whose glory Uh, we will die, and for one for whose glory uh, we might suffer. And we're going to uh, respond uh, by singing in a moment um, a song which is just kind of looking forward to that reward, looking forward to knowing Christ, to being with him, to being with our Savior. And uh, there's great words in this song that Christ is my all in all, my joy and my salvation. This hope will never fail. Heaven is our home. Through every storm, my soul will sing. Let's, let's just pray together as, uh, as the band come up.